Welcome to Careers for the Blind. My name is Harrison Hoyes, and I'm losing my sight to retinitis pigmentosa. As my vision continues to get worse, I wanted to have conversations with other blind and visually impaired people to see what advice they may have to offer and keep me motivated and inspired and continuing to strive to do the best that I can in my career. I know I'm not the only person going through this type of situation. So my hope is other people will benefit from hearing these conversations the way that I've been benefiting from them. And in this way, I'll be able to give to others what my guests have been so generous to give to me. In January 2021, I had a conversation with Dan Berlin. Dan has been losing his sight his entire life. He struggled with letting people know that he was losing his vision, but was able to go on to college and complete a graduate degree in microbiology. Dan went on to have a successful career in corporate America, but ultimately followed his desire of owning his own business. With his business partner and Dan as the chief executive officer, their company, Rodell, went on to be a world leader in vanilla extract. Today, after having sold the company, Dan spends most of his time in various investment and philanthropic work. He is particularly involved with Team C Possibilities, an organization that awards scholarships to blind college students. To learn more about the scholarship program and the Team C Possibilities organization, visit www.teamcpossibilities.com. Here's my conversation with Dan. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with me and share your story. Can you start out just by telling me a little bit about your first experience with vision loss? Yeah, Harrison, thank you for having me. Really happy to be here with you. My first experience with vision loss was as a little kid. I was a seven-year-old second grader who um, couldn't see the board, was taken in for glasses. The glasses didn't help. Uh, my parents figured out something was going on in there. Finally took me to an ophthalmologist who looked at my retinas and says, well, this looks a lot like Stargardt's. So was pretty much told at the age of seven that I'd be blind by my 20s and then um, sent off back to school and told me, you know, do the best you can along the way. And uh, that was it. At what point did your vision actually start to uh, affect your schooling? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I admitted it started to affect my schooling, probably in graduate school in my early okay. 20s. Um, the actual effect of it affecting my school took place uh, from elementary school on when I couldn't see the board up through middle school and my development of a whole lot of adverse um, or um, a kind of hiding it techniques through high school where I learned to I learned to fake it. Uh, I had trouble reading textbooks, couldn't see the board, uh, all these different things like that. And I learned to um, joke about it and um, kind of fake my way through. I'd listen really well in class, but would rarely do the homework. So I'd score great on tests, but would struggle with the homework part of it. And actually um, took on that air of being kind of laid back and lazy when it came to homework and things like this, when in actuality, it was such a struggle to do it. And I really didn't admit it to myself or to anyone else that it was so hard to actually do that work without any assistive technology or anything else that um, I wasn't using at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I remember those days quite well. I was similar in that, you know, stubborn and not willing to accept any kind of help and you're struggling, but you're powering through. Uh, so you didn't have any accommodation 
in high school or in, in college? No, no accommodation in high school or college. So I, um, I went to Penn State in 1988 through 92. So that kind of places the time period. Um, but that being said, even though there might have been um, assistive technology available or assistance available, I, I just never admitted it to myself that I really needed that. So I never had any assistance. And then after uh, college, what did you do for employment? While I was in college, I um, paid most of my way through college by working in a Reese's Peanut Butter Cut factory in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I graduated high school. And um, so I was working at Hershey while in college on um, breaks and over the summer. And again, choosing jobs that were pretty specific that could work well within my failing eyesight, but yet do them safely without telling anyone I really couldn't see all that well. Mm -hmm. um, as to what I was doing. Um, but I figured out how to do that quite well in a big corporate environment. I was actually working in, in the, you know, kind of more supervisory role in the production plants, filling in for others in all types of odd jobs from quality assurance to um, production line sanitation and cleaning and just anything they needed somebody to do, I would jump in and do it. Um, so that was my first experience. When I graduated college, I, um, got a job there right away. I just went back to what I was doing as a full-time employee, quickly realized within about um, two months that that's not what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. And so I started applying for graduate schools. What did you do for gra your graduate work? Yeah, in the graduate schools, it's, um, it's amazing how the world of just um, being connected with others work. I found out from uh, a graduate assistant friend at Penn State that knew I was looking for a job that she had a friend at University of Delaware that had heard about a grant opening um, that was coming up. However, it started in February and I had been applying for school starting the following fall in um, September. But being very flexible as I was, I I jumped on it. So I had an opportunity to go down to the University of Delaware, uh, work on a master's in food microbiology uh, on a USDA C grant. So I had, uh, it was a research assistantship. So I had a full ride assistantship to do a degree in microbiology, which, you know, I mean, th this is kind of the course of my life. Um, and thinking back, there probably could not have been a worse degree for somebody who's rapidly losing their eyesight to take on than um, <laughs> counting cells in a microscope. <laughs> but uh, that is where my problem solving skills, I think really started to become honed. Um, where before it was aversion and being good enough to get by, here I was jumping you know, from the frying pan into the fire, doing uh, publishable research in microbiology that involved um, all sorts of works on counting plates and counting, um, counting slides and counting cells. So I needed to come up with techniques and ways of doing that, that I could develop robust data, um, things that were um, duplicated well and um, verified, yet maybe not being able to see some of the colors or uh, count the number of cells on a slide. Right, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of those techniques that you came up with? Yeah. So um, this is my what I've learned over my years of working and going into many, many different fields um, you know, all around the world is to focus on our strengths. You know, find out what, what we're really good at and um, 
hopefully find one of those things that we're really good at that we also like to do and then pursue that as a starting point for career. Um, I happen to be, um, I think, decently good at research planning, um, creative thinking, at, um, at problem solving, at looking at problems from many, many different directions. So I did a very robust um, research proposal here looking at non-culturable but viable incidences of food poisoning and shellfish. So why does um, you know, Vibrio cholera and other Vibrio species and Listeria disappear for some times of the year and then come right back? And it's in the same um, seafood often. So I started looking at that. Um, in doing that, ended up counting a whole lot of microplates micro and uh, working with pathogens, which was uh, another very careful situation, and then doing a lot of um, fluorescent um, microscope staining and looking for uh, viable, but yet not culturable, meaning they wouldn't grow, but they were still alive cells there. And that required different color fluorescent staining and reading that through a microscope. So what I basically did is I, I, I expanded my scope and enlisted this project by putting together so much of a robust thesis. I brought in two other students who were in essence my eyes that were counting microscope slides and mm -hmm. um, plates for me, which ended up creating a more robust research because instead of like one fatigued graduate student counting, you know, 320, you know, slides in a night, I now had two different students um, doing it in duplicate, and I had some level of measuring error between the readings now, too, because I had multiple people counting my slides for results, which the effect of me not being able to do it myself led actually to a more robust um, research results because I now uh, created a duplicate situation here, um, yeah. specifically because I was paranoid about not doing it well enough. Um, so anyway, that's the way I did. I ended up having the research published, um, in applied environmental microbiology, um, two years after I finished it. And, um, yeah, it was an extremely rewarding, uh, process and really taught me a lot about problem solving, even though I was not admitting to anybody, I wasn't using a cane. I really wouldn't admit to anybody that I really couldn't see at that point. Although I was much more hesitant about some of the activities I would take on. Sure. Sure. I was probably legally blind at that point, but um, but not willing really to admit that to myself or others. Right, right. Yeah, that's definitely a feeling I think a lot of people have when you're losing your sight, your your sight slowly, and it's something I've definitely struggled with in terms of admitting it to other people and admitting it to yourself that it's that it's occurring. After graduate school, what did you do for employment? Oh, so it was great. So, um, by the way, a little side story here. One of those um, slide cell counters that um, I recruited in uh, graduate school actually became my wife. Okay. So there was a significant, uh, fantastic uh, benefit to becoming close to other people and, um, and uh, the human connectedness uh, for many reasons, you know, can turn out in fantastic ways. Um, after graduating, um, or while in graduate school, I also took a job at a juice company in New Jersey um, on the weekends. There was some equipment downtime. So I started working for a juice company in New Jersey. Um, lo and behold, my wife started working there when I went back to finish my thesis. And then she got a job in New York uh, working for Pepsi. Um, 
And at that point we were fairly serious. So I was looking at going out for my PhD and um, she was looking to pursue a career in corporate America and really had to come to that decision point. So as much as I love to say I had fantastic career planning, basically um, I followed I followed the love of my life to New York and uh-huh. then figured out the job situation afterwards. <laughs> But as it turned out, it turned out to be very good. I, I ended up um, within a month or two of looking, I ended up working for a Japanese pharmaceutical company called Takeda um, in their technical service and applications labs um, just outside New York City. Okay. How did you get that job? And was, was uh, your site an, an issue during the interview process? Um. No, at that time, I was excellent at faking it, and um, which is something I wouldn't necessarily recommend now, but every individual person and situation is unique uh, to them at the time. Uh, but at the time, I was um, good enough to fake it, and um, my site, that is, and was able to um, do the work quite well. It was a lot of customer discussions and um, telling them about our products from a technical standpoint, and then doing experiments in the lab to try to mimic any issues that they were having and also um, and create new applications along the way. So I had a couple other um, technicians with me and working together as a team, uh, ended up making that job uh, highly successful. And as I figured out, uh, my role in the team quickly went to things that were less visual and things that maybe I was a little stronger at than some of the others on the team. And uh, I guess, uh, again, one of the things I learned early in my career process is that um, I gave a, an analogy, a story here. You know, if I happen to be you know, 320 pounds and six foot five and love playing football, I'm probably not going to be a wide receiver. Yeah. My strength is probably going to be on the offensive line, maybe defensive tackle. And those are the skills I have. No matter how hard I work, I'm probably not going to make the cut as a, uh, as a fast receiver. And right. that's the thing I realized is my strength was my ability to do you know, experimental design, problem solving, look at things from many different angles. And, um, and that was highly valuable in a technical service role. You know, we were here talking about how to solve customers' problems that they were, happening, they were having and Quite often, I quickly learned my one of my skills was asking the right questions, figuring out what to ask and how to ask, and to try to understand what they were doing. And um, other people were very good at running the data, or um, running the equipment, or um, doing other things that were vitally important as well. So I became a team player in a way that I had a strong specialty on the team, and really looked throughout my career to leverage that strength and not try to be the person that could do every job on the team. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to be the best at what I was good at doing. And yeah. that's the way I worked it through my first job. Yeah, that, that's what I learned there. And that's what I, that's what I, I took from that. Do you think that your vision loss enhanced your ability or your, your skills in those areas? Um, I think it helped me recognize them. You know, I I definitely think it helped me hone those skills more. Uh, As with so many things, we get good at what we practice. Um, And those skills, you know, really helped me practice it. You know, when you can't see where the toothpaste is every morning, it doesn't mean I don't brush my teeth. 
it means I figure out a way to always find the toothpaste, you know, yep. and uh, that carries through. That's a strength that carries through in um, in many, many career fields. You know, this ability to problem solve, this ability to um, I hear one of the skills in life that that's very good that comes from being blind uh, that would help anyone is learn how to organize um, situations or your life in a way that you can just do something once and you never have to think about it again. It's always just always in the same place or always done the same way. And being blind, that's extremely helpful. But that's the same thing that's helpful in any career is if we can figure out how to um, answer one question that prevents us from having to answer the same question every day or answer 10 other questions, that's just a huge time saver and efficiency boost. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think blindness like that helps train us to think that way. You mentioned that you wouldn't necessarily advise people to, to, to fake it through the interview process now, but what kind of advice would you share with people going to an interview or trying to apply for, for a new position? Yeah, it was interesting. There was, um, you know, in, in stepping back on that question with the story here, when I did come out at this point, then I had switched jobs and went to work for a division of Pfizer, which was bought and sold a couple of different times in different companies, but I ended up staying with this company for about 10 years. And about two years in, finally, I was at a sales meeting in Mexico and um, said, I, I can't find my way to the conference room. So I pulled out my white cane. And for the first time ever, I used my cane in a work setting outside my immediate like eight person group. And uh, uh, the 400 people at our company, I mean, many of whom I'd known for a year or more, yeah, they were just really shocked. They had no idea. And the one woman who I was acquainted with came up to me and she goes, wow, I never knew you had uh, vision issues. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really say anything. She goes, wow, I just, I'm glad you told me because for the past two years, I just thought you were the rudest person in the office. <laughs> And I said, well, why is that? She goes, I walk by your desk and walk by at the coffee maker every day. And I always wave and smile and you just blow past me like I don't exist. Mm -hmm. And that made me realize that, okay, what impression was I making that I wasn't even aware of by not using my vision or not having my vision to use? So, so that changed my mind about going into interviews and going into um, – first-time job interviews and situations. Uh, I think the thing that we can do, especially somebody brand new going into a job for the first time, is do everything, to give it a lot of premeditated thought. Stack the deck in your favor. Um, realize who you're going to be meeting, how you're going to be, uh, present yourself. Um, and then a couple things going into that depends on your level of vision. At some point, if it's slight vision loss, maybe it's okay to not tell someone that you're blind if it's not going to be a huge hindrance in the job you know if it is i think it's important to come right out front and tell people up front with the realization that we have the ability to create our own brand and we have the ability to portray ourselves however we want to portray ourselves so giving a lot of forethought into how we do that is really important so examples of that would be like using linkedin and uh, creating a profile that, that really highlights accomplishment with blindness as part of those things, but really highlighting the ability to overcome the challenge of blindness as a significant attribute. 
rather than a, a detriment that we filled in the hole, this was the, the hurdle that we jumped over. This is the thing that made us even stronger and better at the stuff we want to portray ourselves as being strong and good at. And then the second thing I would say for people going into interviews for the first time that I just think is, is really important, and, and this is blind, not blind, anyone going into an interview, is um, do your homework, understand the job to the best you can, and have confidence in how you can do the job well and be able to express that clearly. And that is one thing that um, I've learned over time is so important is you know, if we're going in for a, a job in accounting, you know, we want to be able to say, look, you know, I can't see the screen very well, and this is how I do it. So I think about numbers in a whole different way. My whole life has to tie out at the end of each day without me being able to see everything that's tying out. And therefore, I pull that skills into accounting. I never let, I never let loose ends lie. You know, and you just portray yourself as somebody that's taking the challenge and turning it into a strength. You say, okay, well, I don't see the screen, but here's how I do it. Right. And then explain how you would do it. And um, very often people are going to be uh, more impressed than, um, than doubtful. And then the other thing that I find very helpful is to say, especially in big organizations where you have, you know, multi-member teams, to say, look, uh, the typical person you hire for this role is um, X, Y, Z. Now think of the different perspective that I'm going to bring to the group. And maybe, maybe my perspective is only valuable, you know, one out of every 10 times. But man, 10% of the time having a completely different perspective that ends up being the way that we get the business or we solve the problem or win the client. I mean, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good contribution right there. Mm, yeah. So just looking at problems from a different way is, is valuable. How did your career progress? I can't remember the name. What was the name of the company you, that you mentioned? Uh, I ended up leaving a company called Denisco, which had gone through several acquisitions in the process. It started as a division of Pfizer, then went to a Finnish company, then to a Danish company. And then after you left there, how, where did your career path lead? It was interesting. So I, I, I migrated my way through Denisco, went from technical service to um, industry management to uh, marketing with P&L responsibility for a, a specific uh, segment of the business in North America. Um, had developed a, a couple products that I thought would be interesting within this division to launch. And through that process, got to know people in a different division that did flavors and fragrances. And I actually recruited them to manufacture a couple of these products. In so doing, I, I eventually applied for a job in that division and became the global product manager for vanilla extracts within this food ingredient company. And in that capacity, I met my then-to-be future business partner. He was one of our customers um, who was... Um, just figuring his way out in developing retail products um, to sell in, in stores like um, Kroger and Costco and Trader Joe's and those type of um, grocery store outlets. So he and I became good friends and we had agreed to, uh, at some point I was going to leave and we were going to just start off on our own and do our own thing. And okay. um, 
push came to shove. I ended up uh, leaving Denisco. He and I took off, um, bought a small spice blending company in Colorado, and eventually sold off the spice blending business and turned it into Rodell, one of the world-leading vanilla extract producing companies. And I'll tell you, I, it, it took me a long time. I'd always known I'd wanted my own business. I'd always been down that path. Um, and then losing my vision um, really kicked that into high gear. At this point, I was legally blind, no central vision, not driving, not able to see my computer screen, nothing. Um, and losing my sight really made it... Um, something where I, I, I felt like I wanted to control my own destiny rather than relying on others in my corporate environment to, uh, to succeed because I did feel like I was running up against a glass ceiling. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge that all of us still have to face. Um, and it was exacerbated when I, or, or just um, not exacerbated, but um, made crystal clear when I left um, I flew down to Florida where my boss was and um, to resign when I went in to talk to him. He and I had a great relationship. Um, good guy, very supportive. And he looked at me and he just said, well, why would you ever leave? We can never fire you. Hmm. And at that point, I mean, he, he was he was um, he was not American. He was from Latin America. So very direct in his approach. And he's basically saying, look, dude, you're blind. You know, we can't fire you. That wouldn't be wrong. So why are you leaving? Cause you know, you got a job here forever, you know, unless you burn the place down. Um, and that to me, after I left, I made up my mind that I was going to leave anyway, but after that was exactly the reason why I needed to leave. Because for me, my self-confidence and my drive, I didn't want to be the guy that, had a job in the office every day. And even if I didn't do my job well, I could never be fired. Mm -hmm. Right. So I kind of jumped from the, from the frying pan into the fire again. And I tremendously supportive family. Um, my wife left her job. We were living in New York city area. My wife left her job. Um, I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old. We moved to Colorado, um, pre Uber. This was 2007. Um, much no public transportation here really and going to you know work in the startup taking on a ton of debt and um leaving our friends we didn't know anybody out here except for my uh my friend and and then current business partner um and it was just a huge leap of faith it was a do or die thing there was no there was no going back you know we didn't burn the bridges behind us but they got washed out in the process right yeah. Yeah. Wow. Once I that the downside to that is once I left, um, it would have been difficult for me to go back and get my job back, uh, or at least I felt so at the time. Sure. Because uh, I, you know, with my boss especially putting things the way he did, he made it very clear then. He's like, well, you can never leave. But it, implying on the flip side is I probably wouldn't hire you either. Yeah. Right. On the backside, which is that the reality of what we face um, in our situation, you know, which is wrong, which is why we need to be confident to know what we can do and, and be able to clearly say how we can do it. Um, but that was it. And then then, you know, I look at my partner out here and, you know, his leap of faith. This gets back to the team, you know, build your team, you know, find the people that are great at what you're not and be great at something that they're not 
and then work together, you know, have common values, but different skill sets. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my secret to success here. And, um, and with that, I mean, he took a huge leap of faith because here, you know, bringing in a guy to be a partner, he's investing his life savings and his three children's education and everything else in this business as well. And, um, here he's joining forces with a guy that um, you know, can't drive, can't see his computer screen, you know, can't do all these things. And if you dwell on that, you say, why would you ever do it? And the flip side is, well, can do this, can plan a business, can run things efficiently, can bring technical knowledge, you know, can look at problems from different angles. And being an entrepreneur, it's all about looking at problems and finding ways to solve them all day long. You never have enough money. Yeah. You always want more business. You never have the clout that the billion dollar competitor has. You know, it's always a problem to solve. And having that, having that experience, you know, really helps in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you really put it all on the line to to start the company. And can you talk a little bit about that? And and I know you guys had a lot of success with it, but um, just walk us through a little bit of that. Oh, definitely. I mean, we had our ups and downs. I mean, it was it was not a walk in the park. Um, it was in significant debt. I invested everything me and the family had, plus borrowed enough money that you know I would never have been able to repay it. And a regular job would have been bankrupt if this thing didn't work. And um, I believe that there is a um, a strong incentive to that in cutting the cord and not having a way back. Jim Collins writes about this too, or has written a lot about this recently, about taking the leap. And the leap is not one where you have an out that's too easy to grab onto and move to. Because things get tough along the way. And if if you have an out that's too easy to take, the temptation's always there. And at least for me, the temptation would be Maybe I'm not going to put 100% effort. Maybe I put 90% effort and save 10% for the for the out in case it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I cut that. I cut those cords, so there was no out. It was either make it work or bankrupt and start over. Mm-hmm. Which um, which was great in hindsight because it kept our focus during the challenging times. Um, we had some significantly challenging times. We had situated so we were a vanilla extract company. We went through cycles when the price of vanilla extract or price of vanilla pods that we would make into vanilla extract went from $20 a kilogram to 600. And I mean, trying to raise our prices with customers, you know, 30 times wasn't going to happen. Nobody was going to pay, you know, $240 for a bottle of vanilla in the grocery store. And, um, but we figure it out. So, so we partner with our customers. We brought them there. We developed our own supply chain in Africa. We developed joint ventures in Uganda. Um, I actually created a company in Madagascar that was 80% owned by the Madagascar farmers. It was just this idea of transparency. It was solving the problem in a different way that had never been looked at before. And of course, we were told all the time we couldn't do it. And I think that's one of the strengths I came to my whole life. I was told all the time I couldn't do something because of losing my sight. So my fear of failure was um, quite low, so oh, to gosh. speak. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, when your expectations are low, then you're not confined by having to live up to something that you don't. It, it's freeing to just be able to go out and, um, you know, think something through, put a hundred percent effort into it 
and not be attached to the results, you know, or attached to the process or attached to what I'm doing. It should work out, but if it doesn't, then I'll figure out what to do next. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, you guys sold the company, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, so our biggest competitor was McCormick, uh, you know, a great company. I have nothing bad to say about McCormick, but, you know, there are billions in sales. So we went out looking for partners, looking for companies that wanted to partner with us. And um, Archer Daniels Midland came to the table. They didn't do vanilla, but they do a lot of other flavors, one of the world's largest food companies. They said, well, we love what you do, but um, we're not a partnership type company. We just want the whole thing. So we ended up uh, arranging to uh, become part of Archer Daniels Midland, which is a, a great company. At heart, they felt what they, they fit what we were doing. I mean, Archer Daniel Midland is basically a um, a farmer company. You know, they're all about taking products from farmers and converting them into uh, food products for the world. And that was exactly what we were doing. So it was an excellent fit. We came together and um, and made a really nice uh, really nice fit with them. All right, fantastic. So what are you doing with your time these days? I've been working on furthering investments in the developing world in a bunch of different areas from financial technology to transportation to all these things, really leveraging some of the connections that, um, really connections, but the experience I have in Africa and Southeast Asia and looking for opportunities um, either directly or through investments where I can help make a difference in um, development and improving livelihoods in a lot of the parts of the developing world. So I do a lot of that professionally. Um, do um, Team C Possibilities is a nonprofit organization that um, four friends and I started um, five years ago now. And in that one, we take on um, epic endurance challenges like running rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon in one day. And we do that to support students who are blind all around the world. So as part of Team C Possibilities, um, two years ago now, we launched a scholarship program. So we offer scholarships to blind college students who have the will, the drive, the ability, the tenacity to succeed. And we offer financial scholarships and a mentorship program to these students to help to build, bring them together and build a community. And um, so we, we talk about that Team C Possibilities. Our mission is to inspire and empower. And um, that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to show students, young, young adults who are blind, and their families and parents and supporters and teachers what's possible. You know, that is it possible for a blind man to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or, you know, run 46 miles across the Grand Canyon and back? You know, no, it's not impossible. And here's somebody who's just an amateur athlete that's able to do it, who happens to be blind. And we, we translate that same thing into um, education. We say, you know, any career is possible. Our TSP scholars are, are majoring in fields from cybersecurity to economics to pre-law to, um, you know, you name it. Two or three are in music, um, engineering, physics, you know, just completely fields that we wouldn't necessarily think of a blind student going into. Mm -hmm. And we're here to, to help encourage them to say, you know, we may not know how to do it, but I have confidence that you can figure out a way. 
and help them with that journey. Where do you find your motivation to continue to drive and succeed in life? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, definitely, it's like I, I, I love a phrase I had heard um, several years ago that I think really describes the way I live because I have children. Um, they are a major source of inspiration for me. What type of role model do I want to be? And I love this quote I heard about, I want to be the type of person that plants trees for future generations to sit under. Mm-hmm. And um, I just really appreciated that because that's, that's what it is. It's somewhat legacy, but also just want to do something that's meaningful and connected with others for the future. I also learned a lot about myself and this surprisingly came only a couple years ago. I'm not a competitive person although many, many people would call me that. Uh, what I found out is I'm, a, I'm an accomplisher, not a competitor. And I find that's interesting. And that's been really, um, you know, no pun intended, eye-opening for me to realize that, is that I get great joy out of accomplishing things. Um, I use competition oftentimes, whether it's running a marathon or, um, you know, climbing a mountain or, or competing in business. I use that as a, as a measure and as a pressure and as a opportunity to really focus on accomplishing things. And, um, you know, when I'm swimming in the pool, for instance, and there's somebody in the lane next to me, I may use them to push myself to go faster, to get to the lane first, but I'm not looking at beating them. I'm looking at lowering my time. Mm. So it's, it's more about accomplishing a faster um, split than it is about being the fastest in the pool. So, and that, that to me is a lot of my, um, a lot of my drive, just my, um, I look at life as a gift, you know, we've been given this gift and yeah, some people could look at it and say, well, you were given one that that's not perfect. You have a big flaw in the middle. You have a crack down the side. And it's like, well, yes and no is my life really any different? It might not be as easy, but is the goal of life to live an easy life? You know, that's not really rewarding. I think the goal of life is to have challenges and struggles and overcome them or come to peace with them. And that brings the vitality of life. So that's, that's probably most of my drive. You know, it's very much, um, about um, you know being a good role model and um, seeking vitality in life and looking at it as a gift, looking at it as something that you know I'm privileged to have this, and uh, what am I going to do with it? Yeah, I like all of that a lot. That's that's uh, that's really nice. What are you doing these days for fun, or what brings a lot of joy to your life? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of things. I have a lot of things. I love some of my investment work that I'm doing now. Um, I love some of the stuff that we're working on, you know, in different parts of the world and um, here in the U.S. Um, I do a fair amount of philanthropic work, uh, mostly around economic development and education. You know, I love that um, that idea of um, encouraging, inspiring, bringing opportunity to the future generations. You know, um, especially ones that don't have all the opportunities um, necessarily at their fingertips and seeing what comes out, you know, seeing what, how are they going to change the world for the better in the future? You know, I, I get a lot of real joy out of that. 
and then physically I'm always training. So I, I committed with a, with a friend of mine, one of my co-founders of team C possibilities. We're going to do a 93 mile trail run around Mount Rainier this summer, the first week in August, um, wow. as a fundraiser for TSP, you know, we gave out, um, a little over $60,000 worth of scholarships last year. And, um, you know, that requires some, that requires some donors that requires some fundraising and some support. And uh, we try to raise awareness for that. You know, we're always looking for people like-minded that would like to become part of our team and like to really um, get behind what we're doing and help support um, either as a mentor or, or especially financially to help some of these students through the process. Um, so yeah, doing this uh, 93 mile over three day trail run around Mount Rainier as our next, uh, next challenge. All right. Fantastic. Is there anything that you would have liked me to have asked that I didn't or any additional advice that you'd like to share with other blind and visually impaired people? Oh, I think, uh, I think that's a great question, by the way. Um, the, the one thing I would say with, uh, to everybody who's blind and visually impaired is, um, yeah, let yourself off the hook and be comfortable in your own skin. You know, realize that, that what we're given with life is a gift. You know, use it as a gift. There, there, there's no expectations that people have of us for better or for worse, oftentimes. So anything we do is, um, is define the odds. I mean, we're the underdog. And, um, you know, embrace that. Embrace your underdog. Um, you know, let yourself off the hook. Don't, you know, mistakes are fine. We have a built-in excuse for just about any mistake we make, you know, when it comes to something there. So use it to your advantage, you know, focus on what you're strong at, focus on what you're good at, focus on what you like to do. If you like people, um, focus on helping people. You know, if you like um, writing, focus on writing. If you like engineering, focus on engineering. You know, if it, whatever it is, find something that you like and um, really work on your strengths. And then just mitigate your weaknesses. The best way to mitigate weaknesses and get rid of weaknesses, I believe, is um, build a good team. You know, surround yourself with people that want the best for you, number one. And also that um, have the same values but different skills than what you have. And I think that you can go a long way that way. And, you know, count yourself. I mean, we all bring our own unique set of skills to the table. And sometimes it takes a long time, decades to figure out what those skills are. But, you know, if we focus on what we're good at and surround ourselves with like-minded people with the same values but different skills, it goes a long way. I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Dan. I know for myself, I'm going to focus on my strengths to try and form a team around me of people with common values but different skill sets. Dan has reminded me that the goal of life is not to have an easy life, but to have a rewarding one. I also really appreciated Dan's comments on being an accomplisher. To use competition and competitive situations only as a way to help you achieve more based on your own personal goals, and not as a way to compare yourself to others. Don't forget to visit www.teamcpossibilities.com to learn more about the scholarship program that Dan's involved with. I hope you come back to hear more conversations with other blind and visually impaired people. And thanks for listening.